If you took your time machine and went back 6,000 years ago, or 20,000 years ago, or 100,000 years ago, and found a small baby abandoned, brought them to the present day, and raised them, they would not grow up to be a Sumerian or a caveman. They would grow up to be someone indistinguishable from someone born today. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back to talk about organized learning and its consequences. But first, here's a message from our featured nonprofit. I'm going to start a chapter because I believe the fight against poverty and illiteracy is a very big fight, and it's one that we need to be universally together in. We started a chapter together, and it proved to be a really great way for us to develop our leadership skills and get involved with a larger organization that would empower us to change our lives and the lives of individuals around the world and in our own community. What I took away from this whole experience was that the more you give, the more you gain. The harder I work to improve the lives of others, the more it gave me a life-changing experience in return. Buildon.org. Check them out. They're doing important work. I think the most important and impactful innovation that the human species has come up with in 200,000 years is organized learning. Every other species that lives in community does it in the moment. If you drop off a kitten with a bunch of feral cats, soon it will learn to run with them, to eat, to hide, to understand the status roles, or it will perish. But the thing is, that pack of feral cats wasn't that different a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. Maybe they change in response to the built environment, but basically, it is what it is. Human beings are different because human beings figured out how to share learning from generation to generation. And things that we believe are permanent, things that we believe are a given, are not. They are simply the function of organized learning. Now, I call it organized learning for a reason. It's different than school, and it's different than education. Organized learning relies on several things. First of all, peer-to-peer connection. We have culture because the people around us teach it to us and enforce it. And top-down, because often edicts come from the chief, from the network, from the people in charge, about what things are like around here. And so different countries, different hamlets, different towns have different cultures because their organized learning is different. That technology, the technology of the built world, has changed lots of things. Technology has its own ratchet, and its ratchet affects how we do organized learning. We went from having three TV networks blaring at us all the time to 30, to 300, to an infinite number. That changes things because it elevates the voices of people who hadn't been heard. It changes things because it permits far more diversity of thought and connection. Organized learning is remarkably unorganized when we compare it to most of the things in our physical world, but it is organized nonetheless. And that's good news because it means if we choose, we can change it. 
There are places in the world where skin color is not a dominant factor in how people engage with one another. To be clear, race, ethnicity, nationality, these are not scientific concepts. They are inventions of our culture. There are places in the world where physical beauty or appearance matter far more than other places. What we have discovered over time is that culture compounds. There are countries that raise more scientists. There are countries that raise more competitive athletes. This is not a genetic choice. This is the result of organized learning. What are things like around here? What does it mean to fit in? What does it mean to move up? What does it mean to be respected? When we decide how voting is going to work, when we decide where to build the highway, when we decide what it looks like and feels like to go through customs or the TSA, when we determine how people sit in a classroom and what books are available, these are all examples of organized learning because we're establishing culture, what it's like around here. These are choices. If we establish a dynamic where people say, I am eager to vote and I feel welcome when I do, that's one outcome. Or we can establish a dynamic that says, I'm afraid to vote. I feel unwelcome when I do. They're all choices, whether they were made intentionally or not. Organized learning takes many forms. When we give some people less access to tools or leverage or learning, well, that's a form of organized learning. We're sending a message. When we set expectations for people based on where they were born or what they look like, we are establishing organized learning among that group and other groups. When we allocate our budget, when we decide what success looks like, these are all forms of building culture. We're doing it with organization, and we are hoping that people will learn what we are doing because that's what culture does. It sends a message. It sends a message about what things are like around here. So organized learning extends far beyond whatever classroom you are imagining. And it is in every corner of any world that isn't simply a forest with one person in it. As soon as we build something, as soon as we connect, as soon as we interact, we are organizing some learning for the people around us. And now as we are staring straight into the face of hundreds of years of organized racism based on the myth of white supremacy in my country and many others, we need to take a deep breath and realize that we cannot fix this problem overnight, but this problem is not permanent. It is not permanent because it is the result of indoctrination, indoctrination that is based on invisible and visible parts of organized learning. So let's break this down a little bit. First of all, education, the education industrial complex, the mighty force of the industrialized world to create compliant workers who are just good enough to get the job that needs to get done and not hope or wonder if they can get a better one, that sort of education, that sort of education lifted us out of the dark ages and permitted the industrial age to occur. But no, it is not the only form of organized learning. And that sort of education is more about compliance than curiosity and passion and actual learning. We offer that sort of education to different people based on their economic background, based on 
the color of their skin, that expectations are set from an early age about who your heroes might be and how you're supposed to get along in the world. We have created images and models and pathways forward for people based on things that are completely irrelevant to their skills or what they're capable of contributing. And it's not just the thing that we call school that I'm talking about here. Organized learning happens as soon as you land at an airport. What is it like around here? How are you supposed to act? Organized learning occurs the minute you walk into a hospital, including the day you're born. How are you treated? What resources are available to you? How are you supposed to respond? Organized learning happens when you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and have to go ahead and get a driver's license because everybody who has a car learns to drive and gets a driver's license, and there is a regime in place to create something that generally leads to more safety, but also reinforces a certain sort of state primacy based on a certain sort of bureaucracy. Some of these things are necessary, some of them might not be. And now that technology, in the form of the internet, has put in front of us access to infinite amounts of knowledge, we have to think about how we're going to organize this organized learning into a bundle of interaction that creates opportunities for more people. Because it turns out that keeping some people out of the system, keeping some people down, doesn't actually help the others. It hurts them. Because in an economy that was based on scarcity in the industrial system, it could be argued that fewer competitors made it easier to do well. But in an economy that's based on connection and possibility, in an economy that's based on ideas far more than it's based on who can dig a hole with a shovel or who owns a pin-making machine, what we have discovered is that cultures that figure out how to work together in harmony toward a common goal are far more efficient and effective. What we've discovered is that when we keep someone away from the chance to contribute, we don't get the benefit of their contribution. That, in fact, the racism that is endemic in so much of the invisible organized learning that goes on around us is not just toxic and immoral, but really expensive because it wastes opportunity. That breakthrough idea, that innovation, that caring person, that opportunity to make things better. It just doesn't happen because we've excluded somebody from the circle. My whole life, it's been a given that pop culture is what pop culture is. It seems disorganized. It seems like there isn't some evil James Bond villain in charge of who gets seen and who doesn't get seen because there was always more than one voice. But those voices, they tend to work in sync because it's a commercial environment. And in a commercial environment, the people who are paying for the messages to go out, sort of wanted it to be in sync with the way things were and the way things were supposed to be because the commercial environment liked that sort of status quo. And so what got taught, not just in a textbook, but on television, in our culture, as you walk down the street, was reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And then when we created this million-channel world we now live in, new voices began to be heard. Some of those voices were racist, angry, voices that wanted to put other people down in a failing effort to somehow take more than they thought they had. But 
Many of those voices are a different sort of voice. They're a voice of possibility, a voice of follow me, a voice of organization, a voice of we can make things better. And what we are seeing right now unfolding in front of us is a chance to reorganize the organized learning around us, to figure out how to send messages and how to hear messages that say what we need them to say as opposed to just what they used to say. So there is no obvious shortcut or right answer. But here's what we know. In the middle of 2020, in the middle of a pandemic that has threatened the health of so many people, in the middle of a worldwide recession, in the middle of outcries about justice and racism, babies are being born. Not babies from 6,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago. Brand new babies are being born. What will they learn? What is the model in front of them of what it means to go forward? Because it shouldn't take seven generations to fix this problem. That in fact, each of us that lives in culture makes culture. Each of us has the chance to model behaviors that make things better in ways we never even were looking for before. That more than any time that I can think of, culture is made by the grassroots, by each of us, in how we act and what we say and how we say it, in who we work with, in how we respond or choose to react. Because reaction doesn't get us very far, but response, openness, a hand to help somebody get to the next level, these things turn out to pay off for all of us. That what we can work to do is to address the flaws and all the organized learning that came before us, even if we didn't organize that learning, but especially if we did, we have a chance to say, how do other people interact with this thing I made, this thing I am trying to create, these interactions that are in front of us? Because we get to decide how it will work. And a lot of the outcry about social media is totally appropriate because too often in Silicon Valley, the people who work there view themselves as simply tools, tools for technology and tools for investment. That if they use technology and investment the way it's supposed to go, they get a prize. But I don't think that's valid because we make choices all the time. Not just choices in how AI reacts to one thing or another, but choices about which voices we will amplify. Because if we choose to amplify no voices, we have already made a choice about which voices to amplify. That we have to decide in all of the things that we create, are we setting up situations where people will learn from this? Are they organized enough to do better? Because that's what marketing is. That's what culture is. That's what real education is. The chance to lay out a path from here to there to make things better by making better things and the better things existing to make things better. That none of us can change all of the culture, but each of us has a circle around us, a circle of people who want to act like this. And if you can say, people who want to act like this do things like that, then we have a choice, a choice to let people make choices, to make choices based on who they want to be and where they want to go not based on what an antiquated cultural dynamic told them they were supposed to want and supposed to do. Thank you for listening to my rant. Here's to justice. Here's to peace of mind. Here's to good health. Here's to a chance 
to make things better. Go make a ruckus. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a relevant question from a previous episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. You can find out more at podcastclub.link. In it, you will learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because frankly, it's pretty easy, but you will learn to find your voice. You will find the others. And together, in this proven workshop that's back again, you will discover that you can, in fact, build a podcast, not to make money, because you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, to find the people who want to hear from you. Podcastclub.link. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about today or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Hey, Seth. Lucas here. I'm a seventh grade science teacher out of Salt Lake City, Utah. My question is about enrollment. Um, Given that students are forced or mandated to be at school, and indeed, they perceive that to be true. And also given that us teachers are held accountable to state standards, to teaching certain content that not all students may be the most interested in, and that our job is um, judged, how well we do is judged based on uh, state testing, certain test scores, ACT SAT test scores, etc. I'm wondering within this given this current system and the confines, what tips and recommendations you have about creating enrollment. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for this question, Lucas, and thanks for the hard work you're doing to spread the ideas of science, because science is universal and essential, and it can change a kid's life. I'm highlighting this question today because it gets to the heart of organized learning. You are surrounded by a system. It is a built system. It's only 100 years old. The system of SATs and standardized tests and the regime of ranking people and of compliance that we went from needing to get kids to sit still so they'd work in a factory to using that, leveraging it forward and forward and forward toward obeying a bureaucracy that just happens to put science into the curriculum. And you are stuck in the middle. Because what the system wants you to do is treat those kids like cogs in the system so that they will continue to be cogs going forward. That the only reason to learn science is to do well on the test. That a friend of mine who's just finishing up a really expensive college education was explaining that during sheltering from home, Classes were in Zoom. And in a Spanish class, 
the teacher used breakout rooms, which is my favorite feature in Zoom, which permits a teacher who's got, I don't know, 20 people in the class to press a button, and suddenly it's four groups of five, and those five people are now on their own to have a more intimate peer-to-peer conversation, in this case, in Spanish. And he sneered and said what a fool she was, because, of course, she can't watch what's going on in all the breakout rooms, and so the students figured out really quickly that they could just talk about whatever was on their minds in English, that this 45-minute class became the teacher talking for five minutes in Spanish and the rest of the class hiding out and learning nothing. And I looked at him aghast because this was the byproduct, best and brightest, someone who did well on tests and made it all the way to a famous college, who had plenty of resources to do this work. This is the byproduct of being treated like a cog because the minute the supervisor wasn't watching, it was easy to go off duty. Well, that's the opposite of enrollment. Enrollment says, wow, not only did this cost me a lot, I'm never going to get another chance to have this sort of experience. And I'm here because I want to learn Spanish. What a great chance to speak Spanish. And so the organized learning of school broke down, but so did the organized learning possibility among the students because the students weren't enrolled. And so what it means to earn enrollment is to act like the great teacher we all remember having. Maybe we didn't have enough of them. Some people aren't lucky to have any. But a few of us have had a bunch of great teachers. What is the difference between a great teacher and a pretty good teacher? It's 100% about enrollment, particularly today when all the lessons are available online for free. You can watch the greatest instructors in the world teach every single topic for free online. But a great teacher earns enrollment and figures out how to do it despite the system. Because the system, the one that's currently in charge, is not focused on giving teachers the resources they need to earn enrollment. What would it mean for a kid to choose to become a scientist, to choose to level up from the world as they see it to one that is more possible? What it requires, alas, is a level of heroism. It is not business as usual. We haven't figured out how to do that. What we have figured out how to do is to create at least enough room for somebody who's willing to do all of that extra stuff off the books, to look a kid in the eye, to do the emotional labor of finding out, is there a glimmer or has it all been baked out of someone? Even by the time someone gets to kindergarten, the idea of organized learning may have burnt out of them any desire to be curious. But that is what we need to teach kids in middle school or high school or elementary school. Because if they're not curious, by the time they get to the rest of the world, it gets harder still. And you're seeing the system. And your question demonstrates that you see the system. And the answer is obviously right in front of you. You know exactly what to do it, but it's just too hard. Because it feels like each one of us in whatever profession we're in, has to undo centuries of brainwashing, of indoctrination. And it's true, we do. But if we all try to do it, then the tide can turn. That we can invent a new cultural dynamic, a new form of organization around what it means to learn anything, what it means to learn to be at work, what it means to learn to be a citizen, what it means to learn to be part of community. But first, we have to have enrollment.
because we cannot force people to do it. We have to open the door and encourage people to walk through it because learning, the biggest difference between learning and education is this. Education is mandatory. It's something that the forces that be make you do and require you to take a test to prove you did. But learning lasts because learning is voluntary. Learning isn't, I did it because it's on the test. Learning is, I did it because I wanted to know. Everyone who knows how to ride a bicycle learned how to ride a bicycle. No one did it because of that bike riding test. And so we have this opportunity to recast how we spend our time. I'm not sure if Abe Lincoln actually said it, but he said, if I had 20 hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend 18 hours sharpening my axe. Well, in this case, if I had to teach a year of science, I'd spend as much time as I possibly could teaching people to want to learn science. And then I wouldn't need much time at all to actually teach the science. Thanks for the work you do. Thank you for leading. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.